Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the roaring 20s. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Long Shots Off-Track Betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. This is the Music Buzz Podcast. The Music Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome to the Music Buzz Podcast. I'm Andy Wilson along with Dane Clark. How's it going, Dane? Great, Andy. How are you today? Good, sir. And also Hugh Syme. How's it going, Hugh? It's going well. Thank you for asking, Andrew. Good. So glad to see you guys as always. Today, our guest is the legendary Jerry Shirley. Jerry Shirley is a legendary English rock drummer who is best known as a member of the highly influential rock band Humble Pie appearing on all of their albums. Jerry was recruited by Steve Marriott to join Humble Pie when he was just 17 years old. Aside from Humble Pie, Jerry is also known for his work with Fastway, Wasted, Joey Mollen from Badfinger, Alexis Corner, 
Billy Nichols, John Entwistle of The Who, Sammy Hagar, among others, including Sid Barrett of Pink Floyd fame's solo work. In 1970, he worked on Barrett's two solo albums. On the debut LP, The Madcap Laughs, he shared drum duties and played with David Gilmore and Roger Waters, among others. On the album Barrett, he worked with Gilmore again and also Richard Wright and shared the drums duo with Willie Wilson. He also has a wonderful book that Dane's going to get into called Best Seat in the House that we're going to talk about. So without further ado, please welcome to the Music Buzz podcast, Jerry Shirley. Welcome, Jerry. Hi, guys. It's nice to be here and uh, appreciate that build up. Uh, I'm not worthy, as they say. <laughs> oh, Jerry, you sure are. Man, it's an honor and a privilege to talk to you today about your fascinating career. And the first thing I'd like to talk about is what I'm holding here in my hand. The book. The book. Best yeah. Seat in the House, Drumming in the 70s with Marriott, Frampton, and Humble Pie. Now, I'm kind of the rock historian of the three of us here on Music Buzz, I would, I would guess, uh, especially for that period in the 60s and 70s. That's what's my favorite music. And Humble Pie was always one of my favorite bands, but I've read, I don't know, hundreds of rock biographies, probably. But this book of yours, man, there's so much heart and soul in it, and it's so funny and well-written and it just just the way you approached it um it, it's my maybe the favorite one i've read i read it maybe a couple of years ago when i first got it and i read uh -huh. it again a couple of days ago oh, lovely. i'm just i'm blown away by it and just uh i just recommend this anybody who's interested in rock music and what it takes to be a musician traveling around doing what you're doing especially the period of you know how, how it can take you to the highest highs and the lowest lows um you got it all in here it's fantastic i recommend everybody pick up best seat in the house by jerry shirley and that's what it was it was it was the best in the house it really was, it was you know to be an, an honor to be in a band that that great when i was just picked out they could have had anybody that chose me so it was a real honor which is fantastic and i gotta say i saw you guys i saw the second incarnation of humble pie in 1981 in Indianapolis. It was Steve Marriott, Bob Tinch, Anthony Jones, and you. Yeah. And you, and you guys had these two records out at the time, On to Victory and, and Go for the Throat. Yeah. And actually, the radio stations, I mean, I'm not sure a lot of people remember, but they were cranking out. There was a song called Teenage Anxiety that they played a lot. The ballad of uh, uh, kind of some of it was about John Lennon's death. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they played Infatuation a lot. But the one they mm -hmm. played the most was a song that you co-wrote with Steve, Fool for Pretty Face. That's right. That, yeah. yeah. That was a pretty, that was a top 40 hit in 1980 or 1981. And, but I just got to say, here's what I remember about that show. You guys were the second band on, Mother's Finest opened, and then you guys. Steve had that yellow coat on that kind of hung down to his ankle. The oddest looking jacket I've ever seen. The banana coat, we used to call it. Yeah, it was the weirdest look. But man, you got you were rock solid. Bob Tinch was smoking and, and Steve was singing his butt off. And the girl that sang with Mother's Finest came out. That's right. You guys did a blues thing and she was trading with Steve. And I was right at the front, right by the front of the stage. And he left the microphone and she yeah. was singing and he was singing and it was just as loud. He didn't have a microphone. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was just fantastic. I'm so glad that I got to experience that back in the day. 
So yeah. now I want to talk. I want to talk about that. First of all, you got that award, and that's from was that from Classic Drummer that you have on your wall there? Yeah, yeah, very yeah. deserved. Um, very deserved. I want to talk about some specific things about your playing that kind of changed the way I thought about playing the drums. And uh -huh. for any drummers out there listening or musicians, you need to check these songs out. They're not, some of these aren't the ones that people know from Humble Pie so much, but, but some of my favorites that featured you. Um, Grooving with Jesus from Thunderbox. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of like a real funky, kind of almost a fusion groove. Um, your bass drums playing some kind of tricky things. And these are things I had tried to figure out when I was, you know, coming up and trying to play. And it actually reminded me of some of the, uh, the stuff that the guy from weather report, Alphonse Luzon was doing in the early seventies. It's real cool, mm -hmm. man. Kind of groundbreaking stuff. But my personal favorite was still from that record, the Thunderbox record rally with Alley. Oh uh, yeah. And you did that drum intro. Yeah. And man, I spent, I spent a couple of days working, trying to figure out how to play that. <laughs> and once I figured it out, I'm, I, I can play it now, but I was pretty, pr probably pretty rough back then. But I had a band back in high school. And it, since I learned that song, nobody else had that Thunderbox record. But I said, well, if we're going to have a band and we're practicing in my house, we're playing Rally with Alley because I'm going to play that drum beat. So we did learn that song. Black Coffee. Come on now. Yeah. I still have trouble thinking about how I would play that drum beat because you're in 4-4. Four, four, and then you go into six four. Yeah, it goes back and forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't know if you were thinking about that or you just felt it. No, just felt it. Yeah. From a guy that went to school and majored in percussion, I'm a guy that I have to almost write that out and then just memorize it because it still feels like I tried to play along with it and I go, oh, I, what you did was better than what I was trying to do on it. It's fantastic. And for anybody listening to this, if you want to hear what I think is the greatest version of that, I believe it's on the old gray whistle test. Yeah. You guys playing it live. It is fantastic. Between you, your approach of being a trained uh, guy who, who went to school and, and learned how to write it all down, et cetera, et cetera. With me, I'm a musician from the point of view of, I, I started actually playing piano and uh, guitar, but self-taught. So when I learn a drum part, I'm following the guitar part or I'm following the bass part or the piano. So what I'm playing is just not, I'm not thinking time signature. I'm thinking how am I going to make this fit drum-wise to the lick? You know, that's the way which I think it should be, you know. Um, but that's how come all those um time signatures that get swapped about i would have no idea in writing it down what it actually was i just know right. i have a question about that dane talks about deconstructing how you play what you play and you talk about it coming from a place of feel how is it that you become apart from practicing a lot but how if you were to think about what you're doing would you <laughs> would it affect the way you performed it or do you rely on feel every time you go out? Every time, really. First of all, I was never a guy that did a lot of uh, practicing, did a lot of rehearsing yeah. with the band, but my idea of practicing was playing a gig. You know, I, when I was a kid, there was only one type of entertainment available to us, and that was playing live music. There was a gig 
every at the bottom of the street and someone would open a garden shed and there'd be a gig in it that later that week you know you could play live all the time back then yeah so that was where you you know made your bones if you like you know learned how Learned your craft by doing it live. Um, I was never, as you will know full well, and soon you get a position where you've got the luxury of having a drum um, uh, room in your house or in your garage or somewhere where it's not driving. You can't always practice drums. Without driving people crazy, no, you can't. Without driving people crazy. In, back in the day, you couldn't. Today, you can do it on those silent pads, but they suck, you know. They, they don't yeah. feel good. <clears throat> so it was either play or don't be, don't bother. So it was always with me about the feel, about doing it time and time again in, a, in two either in a rehearsal room with a band or in front of an audience. And by the way, that particular groove on Rally with Ali, I love it because I have just discovered how to do, uh, well, do well, a double bass drum, a triplet, like boom, ta-ka, boom, boom, yeah. you know, yep. you know, or a triplet even, uh, where a lot of drummers stay with use to those two pedal bass drums on the one bass drum, you know, um, I had a lovely You always just had one, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I had a great conversation with uh, John Bonham once, we both a, a little bit in, uh, We've had a couple of drinks, shall we say, um, which I don't do anymore, haven't done for years. But um, we were basically saying, if you can't do it with one, what, don't be bothering with two. You know what I mean? If it, um, but that's just us, especially him. God, he was the king of that type of thing. But, um, yeah, I, I, just, I just figured out how to do that pretty well. And then... We, I'll say. <laughs> we thank you. And, and also, Greg Ridley, the bass player, was a wonderful bass player. Yes, he was. Because he and I had that um, telepathic thing. You know, if I'd start a groove, he would immediately know what to do with it and vice versa. So, you know, that, I'm glad you picked that one up because actually the other day someone um, – online was talking about our best tracks and worst tracks and they quoted rally without it as one of the worst and pointless tracks we ever did i'm so proud of that little groove you know yeah man it's classic stuff well you know hey the drummers would appreciate it this guy was probably talking about it wasn't you know a classic sort of pop hit record type thing i don't know but it, it was definitely a musician's track it know? certainly was and i i gotta tell you i dove into last night the rock in the Fillmore. has it been out for a couple of years the complete recordings i guess uh, yeah yeah I, I hadn't i mean I, i've had that record since it came out when i was 10 or 11 years old but i'd never heard any of the other versions of it uh-huh. um and, and by the way it rock in the Fillmore, humble pie Come on now. If, is that not one of the great, that's undisputedly one of the great live rock records of all time? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, now I can agree with that because of yeah, back then, I'd, I would have, it took me a long, long time 
to finally sit down and say, you know what? We were pretty damn good. <laughs> I was I, humble by name, humble by nature. I was never good at saying, wow, that, we would privately say, wow, that sounds pretty good. But when time rolled by and things like what's the greatest line album ever recorded started, you know, lists of things like that, and, and our um, record was being included, uh, along with things like the Allman Brothers at the Fillmore, etc. Yeah. I'm thinking, oh, wow, yeah. And then when we did that complete recording with Peter Frampton and myself, we did it um, like we're doing this, and we did it across, you know, through the computers. He was in the studio in America. I was over here. When we were bouncing ideas off each other. So he and his engineer was, we were tweaking bits here and there and making sure it was as exact as it was on the night. So, but yeah, it was. And the thing about also about that record, and if you notice, the other great live albums of that time all ended up being recorded at pretty much at the Fillmore. Most of them in it, yeah. It had an unbelievable sound in the room. It was a, it was a musician's dream, especially a drummer's dream. The room sound in there was fantastic. Yeah, the drums sound great on that stuff. And what I listened to was the uh, the first night's versions of Four Day Creep and I'm Ready. And uh -huh. I think, I mean, I'm not sure why you guys didn't put those versions on the original record because the, you and Greg Ridley, man, were just burning it right off the get-go. I know that's how you started your show was Fort Day Creek. Yeah, back then. I honestly can't remember what it was that made us decide one at back, way back then um, why we would have chosen for it, the one we did choose for the album compared to those i just can't there's no real rhyme or reason what we were mainly looking at was for the um the versions that were best performed in the general sense you know least amount of screw-ups or whatever um but other than that i don't know i think both peter and i when we got to do that remake of it we're both listening to some of them saying, well, I wonder why we didn't use that version. You know? <laughs> sure. Um, so I, I have no honest answer as to why we did or didn't. It's just, um, that's the way it was. You know? How many nights did you guys play that series of shows? Uh, we did, that was a, a two night, a, two shows a night for two nights. So there was four total shows to choose. Okay. Well, that first show was sure smoking, man. That's all I can say. When you were 14 years old, your father asked a couple members of the Small Faces to watch you play yeah. from the side of the stage in your band, The Little People. Can you take us from when you first started drumming up to that point and the significance of that very day? Uh, yeah. But, well, well, actually, I started playing at nine years old by accident we'd moved into a into a public house a pub and lived above it anyway i had to move schools and i hated a new school so i pretended to be sick and the problem was i did a really good job and i'd faked appendicitis 
Well, 60 years ago, when I did this, they didn't have the technology they have today to where they could have scanned and they had basic x-rays and all. So they kind of had to go on just the um, symptoms that you were showing. Well, I did a pretty good job. <laughs> Because I got taken to the hospital, and I'm thinking, oh, dear, all right, well, I'll lay here for a few days. Because a friend of mine at the school I'd been at before, I'm nine years old now, he'd had appendicitis, and I remembered his um, uh, symptoms, you know, feeling, getting sick. Uh, anyway, long story short, I'm laying in the hospital for a day or two thinking, right, I'm going to miraculously get better. <coughs> Excuse me. And... Um, I'll be sent home. And on the morning of the third day, believe it or not, the food was quite good in there. And as the food tray, the breakfast tray is coming by, I said to the nurse, excuse me, miss, I'd like some eggs and bacon this morning, please. And she looked at me and said, nothing for you this morning, young man. They're operating on you today. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I shit oh. myself. I've gone, holy fuck. <laughs> oh, so, oh. anyway, I fessed up and then they couldn't figure out whether I was now lying about the original lie or I was lie telling the truth about it. And so that, you know, they didn't know what to do. Well, the long. And short of it is, I no longer have an appendix. <laughs> oh, wow. Out it came, which is a good thing because you don't need an appendix. They use this piece of kit, and late in life, if they um, go wobbly on you, they can kill you. It's a, you know, you can get, uh, if they burst, you can get blood poisoning from them. Anyway, so the kid in the, in the, in the, in the next to me, um, he was older than me, he was about 15 years old, and I felt real sorry for him because the poor soul was being circumcised. Ooh, oh, no. That's a little late in life to do that. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, he was given a soccer outfit of, of, of my team, the team I support, uh, as a coming out present. So I said to me, Dad, being a cheeky little sod that I was, um, Dad, is, uh, he's getting this... Um, Spurs outfit and this top um, football outfit and I want a drum kit. <laughs> My dad was a, a, a drummer from the swing period, by the way, from the swing era of the late 20s, early 30s. Awesome. And uh, so he was quite, he went out and got me a, what I call a bits of kit, bits of this and bits of that, you know. And uh, yeah. and so that's where I started a rock and roll. We had a, we lived in a pub where they had um, a band come and play every Friday and Saturday, and I would start to sit in with them. They used my drum kit sometimes, and then I'd sit in with them, and that's when I did get a chance to practice during the day because the kit was set up in the bar. Um, and then things went from there. By the time I was 12, I got – the word got about that I was an okay drummer locally, and the big – college band at the time needed a new drummer 
So they came round to my house expecting to see an 18-year-old and they find this 12-year-old in short pants kicking a football around in the backyard and said, we're looking for Jerry Shirley. And I said, oh, you found him. <laughs> and they, anyway, they gave me the gig. And at 12 years old, I was doing gigs for a brief period of time, earning more money than my combined parents' earnings. Wow. Wow. It didn't last, <laughs> but it, so then we started to do shows. We formed it. My brother and I, Angus, we formed our own band and we started to do opening slots for other bands. And so fast forward to I'm now 13 ish and we opened up for the small faces. And my dad pulled Steve and Kenny to one side. He probably bribed them. He probably gave them five quid or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and he said, would you, you know, watch my son and tell me what you think? Because, you know, I, I was a drummer and he also, I was a big fan of Kenny Jones. I thought he was a great drummer because he and I played very similarly, you know. Mm. And uh, yep. so... They were very, very sweet. They were my favourite band. We're opening for them. I'm playing away. I look to my left and there's Steve Marriott and Kenny Jones both sitting there giving me a thumbs up. That, That's awesome. that, that was great. It was, you know, your heroes giving you a... Yeah. Uh, and, and then I went on to do sessions for Steve Marriott and Immediate Records. Um, and then a couple of years after that... Um, Peter Frampton was looking for a drummer and Steve suggested me for a band he was going to put together before Humble Pie. But, you know, this was the beginnings of Humble Pie. Um, and then not long after Peter and I were trying to put a band together, Steve called up on New Year's Eve of 68, 69 and said, I've just left the Small Faces. I'd like to join your band. And I want to bring Greg, Rick, Greg, excuse me, Greg Ridley from Spooky Tooth with me. And at the time, Greg Ridley was probably the most respected funk bass player in the country. And so, you know, that was how, it, yeah, that's how it all got going. Can I tell you a quick Ginger Baker story? Please do. I don't want to bog the whole conversation. No. Around about 14, 15 years old, I was playing in our band at a famous club in London called The Speakeasy, where everybody went to hang out and listen to the local bands, up-and-coming bands to play. So we're playing one night, and as I'm playing, I look over at the bar, and who should be leaning against the bar but Ginger Baker? So I thought, oh, this is great, because you had to walk past where he was to go from the stage to the dressing room after your show. So I'm getting quite puffed up by then because I'd done some sessions for Steve Marriott at Olympic Studios, and I'd had people like Charlie Watts and Mick and Jimi Hendrix all stop by and Steve would show me off like this little 14-year-old kid <clears throat> doing his sat drum check 
you know, while we're getting a drum sound, and I'd look up and there'd be Mick Jagger and Charlie Watts standing there. And <laughs> Charlie was great. He said, "Course enough to make you want to chop your wrists off." He was lovely, and you know, really encouraging stuff. I wasn't getting big headed, but I was getting a little bit, you know, well, this is all right. So the night, Ginger Baker said, well, speak easy, and he made sure I didn't get too puffed up because I'm walking past him, and as I get right there, he looks straight at me and says, fucking shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, as he moved, wow. he said, mm. that was fucking shit. Shite. Ginger <laughs> <laughs> didn't mince words, did he? Yeah. I thank him wow. immensely. But, you know, he didn't mince words, and I do thank him um, for helping keep my feet firmly on the ground. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yes, so. Jerry, if you can, uh, take us into the early 70s and how the Sid Barrett sessions came about and what those experiences were like. Obviously, your your book, Best Seat in the House, is a wonderful title, you know, kind of going into this. But what was what's your recollection of that time period and how did that come about? Sid, he was a neighbor. He, myself and Dave Gilmore and Willie Wilson all lived well, Willie and I lived in the same apartment. We were flatmates. And then Sid lived in the building next door, if I remember rightly, to Dave Gilmore's building, where they both had an apartment. Um, and when it was decided that Sid was going to do his first solo album, um, Dave, myself, and Willie were hanging out a lot of the time, the typical hippie stuff, you know, sitting around in circles, smoking a joint and drinking tea and that kind of stuff. But anyway, um, it all started by either well, Willie was doing the drumming on the Madcap Laughs, and I was there, either myself or Willie would be responsible for getting Sid to the studio. I'd be in his chauffeur because he couldn't, he didn't drive, you know. Mm-hmm. Or he didn't by then anyway. And then we would take it in turns to pick up the sticks and play if drums were needed. In fact, on the first record, Willie did more drumming. I did some bass playing, if I remember rightly, more so than drumming. Then they very quickly decided to do the next record, the Barrett record. And lovely quick story about that is that the, what, there were a couple of actual live, all playing together tracks on that album. Most of them were overdubbed and stayed to get Sid to play and sing a song and then would overdub everything on it because getting him to play it the same more than once was almost impossible. However, on the second, just Barrett, it's called, the second album, there's a track called Gigolo Aunt, and that is a live recorded track, and the lineup is on bass, Dave Gilmore, on keyboards was the, um, oh, bless you, Pink Floyd's keyboard player. Richard, right? Yep. Myself on drums and Sid Barrett on guitar. And that's a pretty interesting band, you would think, right? Not too bad. Yeah. It went beautifully from start to finish, no really bad mistakes. It was a complete take. Mm. Um, 
And fast forward about 45 years or more, I was doing one of those rock and roll day camp things that they did, uh, we, uh, fantasy camp, and mm -hmm. I was going to do an appearance there, and part of it meant going back to Abbey Road. And as I'm walking through those famous white pillars either side of Abbey Road's entrance, by then, Rick Wright and Sid had both just passed away. And there was this um, graffiti, Dear Sid and Rick, we miss you and we love you very much. And I'm walking through it and it just hit me. Oh, my God. 40-plus years ago, I was in that studio playing on some what are now considered iconic album track, which are actually pretty messy things, I mean, to be truthful. But I thought, what an honour. I mean, you can't buy that. There's no money in the world can can you would give that privilege to anybody. And sure. it was quite something. Although the best track, drum-wise, on either one of the Sid Barrett records was recorded, sorry, was played by Dave Gilmore as a song called Dominoes, and Dave overdubbed the drum track onto it, and it did a beautiful job. That's my favourite song on, from either, either record. But, uh, yeah, so I was basically Sid's um, uh, chauffeur, <laughs> making sure he got there on time. <laughs> Um, then um, Willie or Willie and I were, and then we would play whatever was necessary on the day, and then get him home at night. You know, hoping that he wouldn't disappear for a day or two. Right. How about the uh, All Things Must Pass sessions? You played tambourine on a couple cuts on there, right? Yeah, that was. <laughs> um, I was at Greg Ridley's house. And the phone rings, and it's Peter Frampton, and he says, "Jerry, I'm not." Um, Abbey Road, and I said, yeah, great, and uh, I'm recording with George Harrison, and he said, we've got a problem. I said, oh, yeah, what's that? He said, well, we need a percussionist. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, I don't know one. And he said, no, you, you fool. Because <laughs> I'm thinking percussionist, you know, no, that's, that's not, I'm a drummer, I'm not, you know, I'm not a conga player or a, a tambourine player, but what they needed was someone to play a tambourine in the middle eight of two songs. So I truck on over there and um, got to stand next to Ringo while they were playing if Not For You was the one track, um, the Dylan tune, and the other track was called The Ballad of um, Sir Frankie Crisp, Let It Roll. I do remember it was very surprisingly laid back, and all the members of Badfinger were there, although I didn't know Joey personally yet. Um, Eric was there. there everybody, it was more about who wasn't there, which there weren't too many, you know, they were all all the big stars of the time. And all I can remember about it is George Harrison telling um, Phil Spector off because he was taking his time over something, and he said, you better hurry up because Richie, meaning Ringo, has got to get home for his tea. 
because tea means supper in England, you see. Yeah. Uh, and I just thought that was so cute, you know. Um, but, boy, the sound that was coming out, it, was, it had to be 30 musicians in that room, at least. You know, you talk about privileged earlier. I mean, what a privilege, you know, oh, uh, yeah. privilege yeah, to be in that room. My goodness. I mean, it, again, you'd, until, you'd, until afterwards, you think, my God. What a lucky, lucky man. And mm. I, did, I didn't get um, credit. Even Peter didn't get credit either until many years later. Because so many people on that record, a lot of them that did quite a lot of work on it and were named people didn't end up getting their name credit on the record until years afterwards. How did that evolve in, into where it was decided that too many people were o omitted from the original versions? I, I think one by one, they all politely asked if they could get their credit. The, the guy that was actually responsible for getting everybody on there, I don't think I ever did, but um, I missed out because, bless him, Neil Aspinall, the Beatles' well sort of personal assistant or manager or whatever had been with him ever since day one lovely man bit by bit we would each call him up and say Neil you know I didn't get me credit and he would fix it for the next pressing oh yeah and I was about to call him because Terry Doran, who was the other very well known assistant to George Harrison who just recently passed away he was apparently the man from the motor trade. And the man in the motor trade was Terry Doran. So, um, but anyway, um, he, those two were the conduits through which people would get things like that fixed. But I never got around to, again, the type of person I am, I was always too shy to ask until quite late in life, and by the time I got around to getting in touch with Neil Aspinall, bless his heart, he passed away days before I had built up the courage to ask. Well, Jerry, I got a, I got a quick question about something that's a, a little different thing here. When Humble Pie broke up, the other members signed away their royalties, but you didn't. Can you explain that to us? Pure luck and a and a, a bit of accident, an accident of um, when a big bang in that back in the day, and you might be able to relate to this possibly. When a big band breaks up, the ones that are most valuable to the future are the lead singer, the lead guitar player, and possibly the bass player if he's a singer songwriter. The one that's least got the least star quality in, um, would be the drummer back then. Whether he was a good drummer or not, he would still be. Um, and so I moved on to a band called Natural Gas, and I needed to get contractual freedom. And without knowing what I'd done, or the, the consequence of what I'd done, I went ahead and pre, it's like a preemptive strike. I went and said, look, we've got this piece of property that we all apparently own a piece of, and as we're in debt, so I'm told, I would like to sign over my piece of that to go free and clear. So I didn't sign away any of my royalties. All I signed was a piece of this um, property in, in the Bahamas. 
So fast forward 30 years, everybody, the thing is we were in debt anyway. So the guys that signed there as a way were signing away nothing because they were, the, the group's um, account to A&M and management was in the red. So they figured, well, to get their freedom and go somewhere else and get another contract with them, it, they weren't, you know, it wasn't until 15 years later when our records continue to sell and all of a sudden we're in, in the black. I find out we're in the black, but I'm not getting any checks. And eventually it got fixed, you know, because I could prove that I hadn't signed it away. It was a lot of luck and a little bit of common sense, I suppose, but more luck, really. Good move, though, man. Good move for that. If we can shift gears a little bit here and uh, turn turn it over to Hugh to talk a little bit about um, album artwork um, for the bands that you've been in and some of your favorites, et cetera. So I'll turn it over to Hugh. Yeah, I'm always a bit leery about this subject because some of the musicians we talk to, they're all about the music and they don't have much regard for or much interest in and nor were they vocal in the process of securing the right covers Obviously, having worked with people like Sid and David Gilmore and Roger and all that, you were obviously well poised to be amongst people who eventually really did care about and and locate someone like Storm Thorgerson to, to represent their look and feel. But throughout your whole career, how much did any of that matter to you? How much did you did you feel that the look and the, the you know the the shelf appeal of an album had merit apart from the fact that you got to watch a, a cover from from the moody blues or an early kind of umagama kind of cover or even the early sid covers and so on they had a certain shelf appeal yeah how did you feel about album art in your career i thought it was very important and i thought actually because i knew storm and Poe, personally, through Dave, I actually shared an apartment briefly with Storm and his then wife because nice. I had a girlfriend for a while um, called Lindsay Corner, who was Sid Barrett's ex-girlfriend. She shared an apartment with Storm, and so I used to hang out there for a while. And I pushed quite strongly um, at one point or uh, two, to, uh, two times, actually, to get Hypnosis to do Humble Pie's album covers because I knew how powerful the work they were doing was becoming. To yeah. And, that, I mean, they, are, they were responsible for a lot of the point-of-sale attraction to yeah. the album. And like you see, I'm a gummer, um, uh, some of the Led Zeppelin records, and I mean, uh, what hypnosis did, and they were the first, really the first ones to really take um, album cover art um, to the next level. Once Sergeant Pepper went and did what it did, then they took it. Uh, you know, it, it became almost as not quite as important as the music itself, but it had to complement the music. In hindsight, a lot of bands, you say it's not quite as important as music. Nothing is ever as important as music, but so many fans and so many people that follow bands that have a look, whether it's Roger Dean and Yes or, or uh, Hypnosis and Pink Floyd, 
you almost, they're in, inextricably joined together. It sometimes takes history to prove that point, you know, um, because you can't look at Wish You Were Here without, or even hear it without looking at that cover in your mind. You know, you, you can't, you can't dismiss that cover because it was so iconic. Oh, absolutely. They, they were a, certainly a big part of why, why I felt comfortable leaving performance music and going on into doing, if I couldn't have done album covers, despite being interested in artwork and being an illustrator and so on, I probably would never have been as happy as I was with the freedoms and the fun I've had in the album, album world. Um, which hypnosis covers did you lobby for Humble Pie? Uh, the, well, the first one, which didn't actually turn out too great, was Town and Country because it was done in such a rush um, that all it was was two photographs, one of me and Steve on one side and the other of Greg and Peter. Um, and, and immediate were falling apart as a company. So... It was a bit of a hiccup. Then later on, we fast forward to Thunderbox. Great cover. Yeah, well, they they got involved in that, and that that was um, very typical Storm Thoughts and Dirty Old Man type album cover. <laughs> but I look at you know going through to Natural Gas and seeing kind of that deco. You, there seems to be a, a an affinity to mid-century diner lettering you know like yeah, the deco song. absolutely even the um fast way the, there's an american diner feel to that even though it was you know it, it also had the checkered flag mm -hmm. um and then i look at the uh the all, all fired up dragster were you kind of enamored of all that kind of americana yeah yeah, yeah very much so there was in fact that um there was a video done of the All Fired Up track where we had the, the live, the, the, the dragsters taking off from behind me, shooting, you know, not nearly as fast as they would normally do it, but still pretty epping fast. So, yeah. so the bits of rubber were being thrown up from the track and hitting me on the back while yeah. it took off. It was, it was, uh, Pretty exciting stuff. I, I I liked that album cover. I like both those albums. Yeah, me too. Better rubber fire on your back. Yeah, yeah. But but I mean, well, I think it was bits of tire or the, the track itself. The bit, the the part where they take off. I yeah, yeah. Cover of of sort of rubberish type. And I don't know. All I know is there were bits of rubber hitting my back, and so. Um, I didn't get hurt or anything like that. I tell you who did it: NFL Films, because they they their headquarters were right there near the track, which was somewhere just outside of Philadelphia, somewhere, somewhere in, in, in Pennsylvania, not far from Philadelphia. A big um, NASCAR track of some sort, or dragster track, and right. NFL Films headquarters was right close by so they were commissioned to do the shoot um and yeah oh well the biggest bummer of going from vinyl to cd apart from the difference in the sound because i still believe that vinyl a good vinyl on a great system is the best sound that's my personal opinion but the biggest bummer was that the whole thing of artwork 
pretty much disappeared because you can't get the same excitement out of looking at something this big compared to what it used to be like to open up a big gatefold album cover and all of that, you know. That disappeared when CDs started. I have a theory about that, though. I, I agree with what you're saying. The canvas of the 12-inch album was a beautiful engaging thing and it allowed you a lot of room for detail and subtlety a lot of that was gone when you went to four and three quarter inches square yeah but as i've said to uh dane and and andrew um when you lose the front panel of an lp or maybe if you're a bigger band you had a gatefold you still only had front back inside gatefold but on a cd booklet with any band of, of a certain stature, you could have 20 or 30, six or 40 pages. That's of, true. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I got to indulge in a different way. I would look at all the lyrics of the songs and then start illustrating each song. So, you know, for the door that closed, a window opened, you know. And yeah, that's true. Now, that is a plus. The minus is trying to read the um, credits on a CD that I just been a part of when I was stinking drunk or we'll forget about it. <laughs> Better a CD than a cassette, <laughs> you know, those were horrible. Yeah, yeah, very true. Of course, the, the humbling truth is now all artwork ends up in a two-inch square in the bottom left corner of your iTunes screen. So unless you have a band that still relishes and embraces the feel of paper and the smell of ink, you know, it, it's it's – I use this phrase all the time. We're feeding off the carcass of what used to be the music business, you know. A couple more questions here before we wrap. A um, couple, couple of questions regarding on the live topic, Jerry. What was, your, what was your first attended concert as a fan of music? Do you remember what your first attended concert was? Um, okay. Yeah, the, the, the first one as a fan was to a, a local semi-professional band who took me and my brother along with them to one of their shows because one of their wives worked for my, uh, for my parents. Then on the way home from their gig, they wanted to stop and see a big band at the time called Brian Paul and the Tremolos. And they... Oh, yeah. Yeah, and they had uh, one of the. It was one of the. Um, Do you wanna dance with me? Maybe cover of a of a big American hit. So that was the very first actual professional show I saw. But very soon thereafter, I saw. Uh, God, uh, the Stones, the Beatles, uh, Steve Wimmer with with um, Spencer Davis, the Who, um, and the Moody Blues, the original Moody Blues with Denny Lane, uh, on and on. You name it, I saw it. By the time I was 13, 14, I'd seen every big man because I lived in a space where we were surrounded by four or five concert halls where everybody played. Nice. So, you know, you could, if you missed them on the Friday in Hartford Cornish, James, you could see them on Saturday in Road Centre in Bishop Stortford. There was all these, like, thousands seat, and there was, the, there was this chain of places that 
became um, bingo halls uh, called the Mecca Ballrooms. Anywhere from a thousand to two thousand people. One of the I saw one of the Beatles Christmas shows with the Yardbirds on it, um, and Elkie Brooks. That was in nineteen sixty three or four, something like that. But the very first one was Brian Paul. That's awesome. One other thing we like to ask uh, people that come on is, you know, if you can maybe uh, take us back to a couple times in your career where you're like either playing live on stage or in a studio and you're kind of, obviously you already told that story a little bit with the George Harrison thing, but is there any other like, you know, uh, nuggets and stories uh, from your past that you've looked around the room or looked around the stage? Man, I, I, I can't believe I'm here kind of feeling. Um, well, yeah, there's, there's been, I'm lucky to say there's been a few, um, I remember, funny enough, these are little things. I remember doing a gig not that long ago, about eight years ago, at the Albert Hall. It was a it was a benefit for the British Cricket Association, and um, Albert, the guitar player, the British guitar player, who's big into country. Albert Lee. Um, yeah, Albert Lee. Bless his heart. Um, was playing there also, and he got up and jammed with Deborah Bonham's band. That's uh, John Bonham's sister. I worked for her for a few years. Mm -hmm. And we're playing away, and I look around, and he's got a big smile on his face, and his foot's tapping. And, and I'm thinking, yeah, I made Albert Lee's foot tap. That's cool. You know, that <laughs> little moments like that. Going back to those stories I told you about being in the studio, and I'd have my head down doing a sound check, and I'd look up, and the, the one moment was when Jimi Hendrix, see, Steve Marriott would go and get all these big stars from Studio One next door, and we were in Studio Two, and say, come see this kid, come see this kid. And I'd look up, and there was Jimi Hendrix. Wow. And I just froze, dropped my sticks, and I was like, oh, oh, <laughs> Lovely. He, he, he stopped me. He put his hand on my shoulder. He said, that was cool, man. That was cool. That was really cool. And all I'd done was do a sound, a drum check, you know, and all. And um, so it's little moments like that. that the other one was, like I said, with Charlie Watts and, and Mick Sandler. I mean, you just can't buy those moments. They're just wonderful. Oh, the best one, I suppose, would be, as I tell you the story in the book, on our farewell tour of the first, when the Clem Clemson lineup, when we broke up in 1975, we played in the um, warehouse uh, in New Orleans, very famous club that held about 2,000 people, and we'd do two shows each night. Well, this particular night, down the road at Baton Rouge, Zeppelin were playing, so we were a little worried that we might be affected with the attendance, but it turned out it was packed. So we're playing away. It's the second show, 11, 11.30 at night, into the second song, and I get to come on everybody, and I'm into the groove, and I'm going back and come on everybody. And I'm just having a good time. And I look to my left, and there's John Bonham standing there like this. And I look to me. And there's Jimmy Page and Robert Plant sitting on flight cases like this. 
They hadn't told us they were going to show up. The roadies didn't, they kept it secret. I almost fell off my seat. I'm yeah. The greatest thing about being in Humble Pie was, and Dan, you'll appreciate this, there's bands that are known as bands bands, you know, the bands that band. And then there are bands, bands, bands. You know, in other words, the bands that other bands want to see, there's another and this is my proudest thing about Humble Pie. We were in that, not necessarily the most successful, but the most respected. And respect you cannot buy. That is the, Steve Marriott always told me, the one thing in this business that money cannot buy, and if you get it, you're very privileged to have it, is respect. Mm-hmm. So all the bands, the other bands would want to go see would come see us. Uh, you know, I've had people like the um, players from Little Feet, um, Richie Hayward, would bless him, he came up when he, he played with Peter Frampton for a while. Great drummer. Yellow drummer. Absolutely. Nice guy. Top drawer. And he comes up to me and says, wow, Jerry, Jerry one of my favourite drummers. Talk about not worthy. The final one on that level was um, the I got to meet the um, um, what's his name, Rick from the bass player from the band, Rick Danko. Rick Danko, thank you. Lovely, lovely man. And we were at a birthday party for Kenny Jones, a surprise birthday party. And Ron Wood showed up with Rick Danko. So he's doing his Mr. Sociable thing, and he comes around the room and he says, oh, Rick, by the way, this is uh, Jerry Shirley, he's the drummer with Humble Pie. And Rick Danko stops and says, oh, wow, man, Humble Pie, we love you guys. And, and I had about 20 minutes of better. He knew our songs, he, you know, Steve loved his voice, blah, blah, blah. Again, you cannot buy that stuff. You know, I could sleep at night because of those things. And and that's not being that's not bragging. It's just being honest about you know. Well, it's it's one thing to be recognized by a crowd, which is an awesome feeling, right? But it's another thing to be recognized by your peers. It doesn't matter what, what line of work you're in when you get re- you know when you get recognized by your peers, it, it's a game changer. And Dane, you had a question. A buddy of mine named Elliot Murphy who lives in Paris. Yeah, now. I know. Yeah, yeah, you toured with him because he told me a story about you. I was talking to him the other day. He, he cut a record in 70, it must have been 77 when you, you went out on tour with him. And I think he may have left that tour or stopped it early or something because he just kind of threw the towel in or something. But he said what he remembered about you was that you always, before you went out on stage, you always said, respect the boards. Yeah. You'd tell the whole band that. Explain to, explain to our audience what that meant. That means the boards are the stage. Uh, you know, there's an old-fashioned vaudevillian saying, respect the boards. The boards are the stage. And if you go out there and throw the show or, you know, you're having a bad night and you let the audience know that you don't want to be there, that's disrespecting the boards. You have to respect the boards. And Absolutely. I got that saying from a story that was told to me by... Um, Tony Bennett's road manager, uh, who said that Tony Bennett had just found out he was 
on the bill with Sophie Tucker in Las Vegas, and Sophie Tucker had given him equal billing so as she could get his fans in the building as well. Tony Bennett had just found out his wife was leaving him or something, so he went out on stage and threw the show. Didn't care, you know. So Sophie calls him to her dressing room, demands his presence immediately, you know, and Sophie Tucker was a presence to be, you know, she was one of the most fearsome um, old vaudevillian, jazzy type singer. And she got him in her dressing room and she just went after him and said, don't you, I brought you into my stage. I gave you equal billing. You never, ever disrespect the balls. Respect the balls, mother. You know, that. <laughs> that's good advice yeah, for any absolutely. musician. Absolutely. Respect your audience. Respect what you're doing up there. Doesn't matter how bad you feel. Doesn't matter if you've got a toothache or your shit. I've been on stage with a broken thumb. I've been on stage passing kidney stones. When you get on stage, it all stops. And all that matters is you give your best to that audience. I don't care if there's one person or a hundred thousand. Mm -hmm. You give it your all. Right. Amen. I think you got the title for, for your next live album, Jerry. Tag the boards. Motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, Jerry, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been fun, guys. I hope I didn't talk too much. No, yeah, no, it was great. Oh, man. Fascinating. Best seat in the house. <laughs> Everybody go out and buy it. Best seat in the house. I'm telling you. It's thank you so much. Lovely hearing your stories today, Jerry. Thank you. Best wishes to you, Jerry. Thanks. You guys take care and thank you for putting up with my long-winded ways. You take care now. Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's Off-Track Betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 